0: Radio Gag, the Gaze Against Guns show. Prepare
1: to gag. Yeah.
0: Good evening everyone and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gaze Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Joshua chayden For those of you who are new to the program, Gag is an inclusive direct action group of LGBTQ people and their allies committed to nonviolently breaking the gun industry's chain of death. That means investors, manufacturers, the NRA, and the politicians who block safer gun laws. We work to ensure the safety for all individuals, particularly vulnerable communities such as people of color, women, people who struggle with mental health issues, LGBTQ people, and religious minorities. GAG condemns white supremacy, all instances of excessive force by police, and police militarization. This week, my friend Tricia Cook and I will share information about how guns are trafficked here on the East Coast along Interstate 95 on what has been coined the Iron Pipeline. We're thrilled to have you join us. First up, we have the latest gun violence prevention news. Take it away, Tricia.
1: Our first news story is from WLNY CBS News and The Trace. Both New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner Dermot Shea are holding the court system accountable for the recent spate of gun crimes that have affected the city. Shooting victims in New York City are up 81% this year from last, including 29 shooting incidents this weekend, compared to 9 in 2019. Because we're facing a perfect storm, and no one can doubt that, All of the combined crises and trauma together have created an abhorrent situation where we saw a crime uptick and a lot of the normal realities weren't there to address it. We've got to fix that now, de Blasio said Monday. We also have to restart all the pieces of the criminal justice system to make sure that, God forbid, someone has committed an act of violence and means to do harm to their community members, that we can do something about it. The mayor blames the court system, which has been partially shut down during the pandemic. You can't adjudicate the case until there's a trial, and that determines whether someone should be allowed to be on the streets or not, de Blasio said. De Blasio cited a huge backlog of cases involving violent crimes, saying only 50% of firearms charges have reached the point of indictment. Police Commissioner Shea says it's made his job much harder. In the last four months, I would ask somebody to answer the question. How many people had a court case disposed of which resulted in them being sentenced to prison or Rikers Island, Shea said. We have 2,000, about 2,100 gun cases in the last two years, so they're still open. Half of them indicted, and almost all of them are walking around next to you and me on the street. A spokesperson for the courts conceded the police commissioner's point. Very few of those charged in gun cases have been sentenced. But he insisted that despite the mayor's impatience, reopening has to be done carefully to protect people from getting sick. We have been working to reestablish full court operations, including jury trials. While New York City still does not allow indoor dining, the mayor blithely asks us to call in thousands of people a week citywide for jury duty. Clearly, he has absolutely no understanding of how the criminal justice system works.
0: The next item comes from KXAN out of Austin, Texas, with additional reporting by CNN's Noah Broder. More than 48 hours after a man participating in an Austin protest was fatally shot, details about the sequence of events that led to his death and the police investigation into the incident remain murky. Austin police confirmed that 28-year-old Garrett Foster was shot multiple times after a car turning into a group of demonstrators at 4th Street and Congress Avenue at around 9.51 p.m. on Saturday, July 25th. Police said that Foster was carrying an ak 47 type rifle when the car turned into the roadway and approached the driver's side window at other demonstrators began striking the vehicle. Gunshots were fired from inside the vehicle at Foster, Austin Police Department reports. The driver of that car who turned into the crowd told police that they had fired a handgun at someone who approached their driver's side window and pointed an assault-type weapon at them. Demonstrators who were present that night, however, tell KXAN this driver aggressively accelerated into the crowd of people. Late last night, a witness to the shooting said the shooter was not defending against violence, but was initiating it. The driver accused of shooting Garrett Foster intentionally and aggressively accelerated their vehicle into a crowd of people before shots rang out, James Sasanowski said. I want to be very clear that the driver incited the violence. He accelerated into the crowd of people, and he shot first, Sasanowski said. Witnesses have given many accounts, including that the disturbance began when the vehicle started honking its horn, APT chief Brian Manley said. Sasanowski said he does not know if Foster pointed his gun at the driver, and he hasn't heard any of the other witnesses saying that that had happened. But, he said, the driver initiated the encounter. This was intentional. It was aggressive, and he accelerated into a crowd of protesters, Sasanowski said. He could have waited for us to pass, or he could have just gone by slowly. We would have allowed him to go through. There will be an autopsy to determine the official cause and manner of Foster's death as the investigation continues, APD police said. The driver accused of shooting Foster was brought in by police for questioning, and his handgun and car were secured for evidence, police said. Another person who fired their gun at the car was brought in for questioning. Both had a concealed license, handgun license and were released pending further investigation. APD Association President Kenneth Cassidy tweeted that Foster was, quote, looking for a confrontation, and he found it, a stance he stood by on Monday when he spoke to CNN's Chris Cuomo. Maybe in hindsight, it wasn't the best thing to do, but I stand by what I did. I just think that it was the best thing for the community to know at the time, Cassidy said. Cassidy said Foster had been protesting in front of the city manager's office with a rifle. You look like you're picking a fight when you're out standing in front of the city manager's house, intimidating them, Cassidy said. An investigation into the incident is ongoing.
1: Our next story is from the Register Guard in Oregon. The city of Springfield will pay $4.55 million and review Springfield Police's use of force policy and its accountability as a result of a settlement of a civil rights violation lawsuit filed by the family of a woman fatally shot by police during a 2019 traffic stop. The settlement, announced by the family's lawyer last week, requires the Springfield Police Department to make needed changes to its use of force policy train its police officers to use the minimum force necessary to accomplish their lawful objectives, and create transparency by requiring a public annual report on use of force. The lawsuit alleged a civil rights violation of the Fourth Amendment for excessive use of deadly force and wrongful death. The Kinneys alleged Springfield police didn't give Stacy Kinney an opportunity to respond to commands, failed to recognize Kinney suffered from schizophrenia, and the officers escalated the situation by breaking Kenny's car windows in an effort to get Kenny out of the vehicle. It further alleges police should have known they were dealing with a mentally or emotionally impaired person, and also knew or should have known that Kenny did not present an immediate threat of harm to them or to the public. The suit also alleged Chief Lewis improperly trained his officers. The primary focus of our lawsuit was not really about the money, said David Park, the family's lawyer. It was about the need for significant policy change and culture change within the Springfield Police Department. He said SPD had a toxic warrior, or us-versus-them culture, with a quick reaction toward use of force. At about 9 p.m. March 31, 2019, Kenny was driving near Main Street in Springfield when Officer Aikens started to follow without lights, and Kenny pulled over to the side of the road. Aikens is quoted in the suit as saying this seemed... Weird to him, so he activated his lights but did not approach Kenny's car. Kenny threw a small gray sound-making device toward Akins while he stood outside his patrol car and Kenny drove away. Akins called for backup and turned on his lights and siren to pull Kenny over a couple blocks away. The suit alleges that Akins approached Kenny's car with his gun drawn, demanding she put her hands out the window. Kenny rolled down her window and yelled, What did I do wrong? before sounding an air horn, rolling the window back up, and driving away. Police blocked Kenny's car in the front and back after she pulled over a third time. The suit alleges that this time Sergeant Rick Lewis, the department's crisis intervention training coordinator, approached the car with his gun drawn, and he and Akins began to smash out the car windows without warning Kenny. The suit states officers tried to pull Kenny from the vehicle, at one point by her hair, and struck her with their fists several times when she would not leave the car. The settlement is not yet final. The parties have 60 days to conclude the paperwork associated with securing probate court approval of the settlement and incorporating the parties' agreed terms into a formal document. Neither this settlement or money or anything else can replace Stacy for the family. They're still grieving at Stacy's loss, the family's lawyer said. It's a tragedy that something that had a violent death like this is necessary to motivate change. Each week at this time, we remember and honor a person whose life was taken as a result of gun violence. Today, we honor Lamar Jack Gibson. Lamar Richard Jack Gibson was born on March 7, 2003, to LaToya Jack and Maurice Gibson. This fall, he would have entered his senior year at Vanguard High School where he was a leader both on the basketball court and in the classroom. But Lamar was fatally shot two weeks ago in the courtyard outside the East Harlem housing project where he lived. Lamar's father, Maurice, was killed almost 10 years ago on the same block as Lamar, and his killers were never found. His mother said, You know how it feels to look at the same detectives who couldn't figure out who killed your children's father, and now you're putting your son in their hands? One teacher remembers him this way. I've taught many students, but there's never been anyone quite like you. How could one person be so many things at once? How did you manage to be charming, quick, smart, charismatic, generous, kind, funny, and determined? Who is both a future engineer and a star basketball player? How does one person add so much to so many people's lives, even if they only see your infectious energy in the hallways? Who else has such deep thoughts and so many fart jokes? You always seem to fly through the obstacles in your life like they were those defenders on the court you left in the dust. Even though you made it look easy, I know how hard you worked. You earned all of the opportunities that were lining up for your future. Unfair does not begin to describe what has been taken away from you. For being just 17, you were leaving behind a huge legacy, having brought so much into the lives of so many. I'm going to try to be as good as you. I'm not sure I can get there. You were just too good. I'm so grateful to have known you and to have you as a guiding light. I love you. Thank you for all you've given us. In remembrance of Lamar J. Gibson, 17 years old, Harlem, New York.
0: You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Gun show here on listener-sponsored commercial-free radio WBAI. We're here every Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. bringing you the latest from the gun violence prevention movement. With the recent spate of gun violence this summer, we wanted to take a look at how people are gaining access to guns in our communities, specifically those here on the East Coast as well as the Midwest. One such avenue is via what has become known as the Iron Pipeline. The term refers to routes in the U.S. that are used to smuggle weapons from states mostly in the South to the Mid-Atlantic and New England, particularly in those states with stricter gun laws such as New York and New Jersey. The routes include Interstate 95 in the east and Interstate 55 in the Midwest, as well as their respective connector highways. The Iron Pipeline was actually coined by the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the ATF, as well as politicians, law enforcement officials, and organizations such as Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which is a coalition of over 500 U.S. mayors. Travel along these primary routes allows for the trafficking of guns from states with less restrictive gun control measures to those states with stronger regulations. The interstate trade in guns creates conditions for a national gun market, with the implication being that states that have established strict gun control measures may find these are actually undermined because buyers can secure guns in jurisdictions that have less extensive background checks fewer licensing requirements, shorter waiting periods, a lack of so-called red flag laws, and a whole host of other provisions. The extent to which guns have traveled from one jurisdiction to another has been the subject of much research and debate. Howard Andres of Columbia University testified in 2003 at a trial that guns from southern states provided the bulk of those recovered during the course of crimes in the state of New York. That's courtesy of the New York Times in 2003. An extensive study published by Mayors Against Illegal Guns, using trace data collected by the ATF, also found that substantial interstate trading guns was apparent. The purpose of their study was to investigate the link between states' gun regulations and the likelihood that those uh, secured in these states would be then used in out-of-state crimes, courtesy of their 2008 uh, report. In 2010, an additional report concluded that, quote, in 2009, 10 states, those being Arizona, California, Georgia, Florida, Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Virginia, supplied almost half interstate gun-trafficked uh guns trafficked, recovered at crime scenes. In May 2015, after it was determined that the gun used in a shooting of NYPD officer Brian Moore was actually stolen from a gun store in Perry, Georgia, that led to U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer from New York calling for a, quote, federal crackdown on the iron pipeline. According to WCBS 880, quote, 90% of guns recovered in New York City at crime scenes were those from out of state. According to the New York Times, the Iron Pipeline is, quote, one of the biggest factors thwarting New York and its efforts to keep guns off the streets and out of the hands of criminals. On January 5, 2016, President Barack Obama publicly announced executive actions to clarify laws on background checks and to hire additional ATF and FBI agents. President Obama stated that guns cross state lines as easily as cars do. If your state has strong gun laws but the neighboring state does not have strong gun laws, the guns come into your state. That's the iron pipeline. Today, we've seen a reversal in much of that funding by the current administration, and the trafficking of guns along the iron pipeline shows no immediate signs of stopping. It's through our direct action and public awareness campaigns that Gaze Against Guns and our partners will fight tirelessly to ebb the flow.
1: If you enjoy WBAI and all of its unique programming, please consider becoming a BAI buddy. A WBAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show going by giving a small donation every month. And really, folks, just a modest monthly contribution can really help keep us on the air here at WBAI to bring you this live show every week. Just go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 and become a WBAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. That's 516-620-3602. Thank you. There are more guns in this country than there are people. Our country has about 330 million people and over 400 million guns. Our government is really good at keeping track of the people, but makes it nearly impossible to keep track of the guns. The gun lobby, aided and embedded by Congress, has successfully reversed progress that was made in the 1960s of keeping track of all of these lethal weapons. Congress has passed laws expressly to keep the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, from tracking gun sales and gun owners. For some history, the 1968 Gun Control Act, passed after the deaths of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy, gave the ATF the authority to regulate federally licensed gun dealers. It focused on prohibiting interstate firearm sales except among licensed manufacturers, dealers, and importers. It also banned mail-order sales of rifles and shotguns and prohibited most felons, drug users, and people found mentally incompetent from buying guns. In 1978, the ATF wanted to have dealers report their quarterly sales. The National Rifle Association lobbied against the requirement, and Congress bowed down to the gun lobby's request, blocking the proposed collection of information and cutting the ATF's budget by $5 million. The next year, Congress further restricted the ATF, barring it from consolidation or centralization of gun dealers' records. So now the Bureau's database works something like this. After scanning and digitizing documents from licensed gun dealers by hand into data systems, the documents, more than 285 million of them, are stored in over 20,000 boxes. Most of the boxes are kept in shipping containers in the Bureau's parking lot because if they were all inside, they would collapse the building's floors. A search for a specific firearm in the data system takes three to seven days. Keyword searches, or sorting by date or any other field, are expressly prohibited. This archaic, cumbersome, and time-consuming process of retrieving information is mandated by Congress. In 1986, Congress enacted the Firearms Protection Act to reverse even more of the provisions of the Gun Control Act of 1968. Interstate sales of long guns became legal. Ammunition shipments were allowed through the U.S. Postal Service. And legal transportation of firearms through states where possession of those firearms is not legal was reinstated. The bill also expressly banned the ATF from creating a registry of guns, gun owners, or gun sales. Then came the Tire Amendment in 2003, prohibiting the National Tracing Center of the ATF from releasing information from its firearms trace database to anyone other than a law enforcement agency or prosecutor in connection with a criminal investigation. It prevents gun trace data from being used in academic research of criminal gun use and blocks any data legally released from being admissible in civil lawsuits against gun sellers or manufacturers. Not content with creating an absurdly arduous process to obtain information about guns, Congress has now prohibited most of the release of the information that can be found. Ignorance is now imposed by law. Congress is complicit in the never-ending violence of guns in our country. Access to data could take guns out of abusers' hands. These laws are opposed by police organizations and mayors' groups across the country because they recognize the new laws for what they are attempts to thwart informed debate about gun sales. If we're unable to track the gun sales and owners who are legal, how are we going to put an end to the tens of thousands of illegally purchased guns that cross state lines every year?
0: To find out more about becoming a member of GAG, please go to GazeAgainstGuns.net, or follow us at GazeAgainstGunsNY on Facebook and Instagram and GagNoGuns on Twitter. You're also welcome to join us at our member meetings that take place every other Thursday via Zoom. For more information about how to attend GAG online member meetings, please check us out on our social media platforms and our website. We're so excited to host these member meetings online, because now Gaggers from all over the country and world can participate. Our next meeting is this Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. And as always, we plan direct actions and join demonstrations regularly. Please join us, because everybody is welcome
1: now it's time to finish the show with our hell yas when we celebrate some of our favorite sheroes and heroes of the week and i've got a few hell yeah to all of the protesters all over the country who are standing up to police brutality and fighting for racial justice hell, hell yeah. yeah
0: a huge hell yeah in memory of john lewis for his lifelong effort to advance racial and social justice we're thinking of you this week john Hell Hell yeah. yeah. And here's to getting into more good trouble.
1: Hell yeah to Donna Aceto for tirelessly documenting us gaggers at actions around the city. She's a breath of fresh air during these hot and sticky summer days.
0: Hell Hell yeah. yeah.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next Tuesday and every Tuesday evening at 630. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on the WBAI website or any major podcast platform we leave you with our fabulous political singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. Enjoy. Oh yeah, we'll tell you something. We got you on the run.
0: If you are an abuser, we want to take your gun.
1: We want to take your
0: your background check, cause when you fail your test, well what do you expect, we want to take your gun, we want to take your gun, and when you go off we feel sickened inside, inside if we prevent just one mass shooting no one dies